you will take your Bibles this morning and turn to Deuteronomy, the 32nd chapter. The scripture reading comes from Deuteronomy 32, and I'll be reading verses 7 through 10. Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father, and he will show you. Your elders, and they will, they will tell you. When the Most High divided their inheritance to the nations, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the boundaries of the peoples, according to the number of the children of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the place of his inheritance. He found him in a desert land, and in the, in the wasteland, a howling wilderness. He encircled him, he instructed him, he kept him as the apple of his eye. Good morning. It is good to see everyone this morning. I just want to say a couple of things up front initially. First of all, uh, I wanted to just, by way of a quick reminder, uh, remind those of you who are involved or want to be involved or are interested in Lads to Leaders, we have a meeting tonight after our worship service over in the Fellowship Building. And so if you want to get signed up uh, for what's, co- what's going to be going on coming up with Lads to Leaders, or if you're just interested and want to know what that's about, uh, it will be a short meeting. It's, it's not going to be a, a brown bag. There's no food. There's not going to be enough time for that. We're just going to have a quick meeting, and so please join us over uh, in the fellowship building after worship services tonight uh, for that. Uh, another thing that you need to know, and this is important, uh, just a, it's kind of a disclaimer for our uh, visitors. Uh, I am not the regular preacher here. Uh, I'm not even the irregular preacher here. Uh, I'm, I'm filling in for John. Uh, earlier this week, someone tested positive in his family. Uh, someone tested positive for awesomeness. Uh, and they were afraid how that might impact us. So they have quarantined themselves. And I appreciate that. And I appreciate how awesome that family is. We miss them and we look forward to them being back soon. But if you get to the end of this lesson and you're asking yourself, why in the world did they let this guy get up and preach? Just come back next Sunday, please. Uh, John will be back. Things will be back to normal. Uh, I promise uh, it'll get better. Have you ever heard that strange phrase that we just read from Deuteronomy 32? He kept him as the apple of his eye. Have you ever heard that, that strange phrase before? The apple of my eye. What does that mean? Now, the context in which we typically hear that is usually it's, it's a, some man who's referring to his daughter or granddaughter and talks about her as being the apple of his eye. And we know that that's a term of endearment. We know that means that 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 daughter or granddaughter, that person is very precious to him. But but where does that strange phrase come from? The apple of his eye. It might interest you to know that that phrase originates in Scripture. That's where that comes from. In fact, there are several times when the phrase the apple of his eye is used exclusively in the Old Testament. And what I want to do this morning is look at those passages, because from that we're going to see some insight into the character and the nature of our God. 
And then from those verses, we are also going to see that based upon what we know about the character of our God, how should we respond to what we know about God's nature and his character? And so the first thing that we notice this morning is that as the apple of his eye, God longs to have a close relationship with you and with me. As the apple of his eye. You know, notice that phrase that we read earlier, the, the last verse, verse 10 says, Is in a desert land he found him, in a barren and howling waste he shielded him and cared for him and guarded him as the apple of his eye. That word, that Hebrew word that's used exclusively in the Old Testament, that's translated the apple of his eye, that word is e shown. Eshon. It means the center of the eye. That little black dot right there in the middle that we call the pupil. That is the Eshon. And what, what that word literally means is the little man of the eye. Now you thought the apple of his eye was a strange phrase. What, what does the little man of the eye mean? What could that possibly mean? Well, I think you might better understand it if you'll go home and engage in this exercise and try this. When you get home, find someone that you don't mind getting really physically close to, preferably someone who is COVID free. And find them and get up close to them, get face to face, get eyeball to eyeball and look directly into their eye, look directly into that E shown, into that pupil of their eye. And when you look in there and you get up really close, do you know what you're going to see? A dim reflection of yourself. You're going to see the little man of the eye, the apple of his eye. You see, The problem is, Michael Poole and I, who's sitting way back there, almost on the back row, Michael Poole cannot be the apple of my eye. And you know why? Because he's way over there, and I'm way over here. The only way that someone can be the apple of my eye is if we have a close, personal, intimate, face-to-face relationship, like the relationship that's described between Moses and God when Moses died. In Deuteronomy chapter 34, verse 10, it says that there has not arisen a prophet in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. That was the relationship that God had with Moses, a face to face E shown relationship. That's the kind of relationship and closeness and intimacy that God wants to have with us as his children. The nature of our God is he longs to have a more close, a more personal, a more meaningful relationship with you and me. Why? Because we are the apple of his eye. That is the nature of our God. The second thing that we learn about God and his nature from these verses on the apple of his eye is that God longs to provide for me. Turn your Bibles to Psalm chapter 17, verse 8. And let's look at another one of these passages. Here we see that God, his nature is that he longs to provide for us. 
In the 17th Psalm in verse 8, it says, Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. God wants to protect you. He wants to take care of you. He wants to provide for you. And more importantly, he wants to provide for you spiritually. He wants to forgive you as the apple of his eye. Notice that that last part of that verse in Psalm 17, verse 8. Notice it says, hide me in the shadow of your wing." When I hear that language, I can't help but think of Jesus in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 37, where Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who have been sent to you, how I have longed to gather your children unto myself like a hen with her outstretched wings gathers her chicks, but you were not willing. God says, like that hen with outstretched wings, come to me. When the storms of life come along, when there's difficulties, when there's hardships, when things are going bad and your life just seems like it's been turned upside down, God says, come to me. When you have difficulties and tragedies and trials in your life, and all of us do, Jesus says, come home. And I'll take care of you. That is the nature of our God. Why? Because we're the apple of his eye. There's a passage in Ezekiel chapter 16 where God describes Israel. And it's a very graphic kind of grotesque analogy. He describes them as a baby that was born and uncared for and unwanted and just tossed and left out in the field to die. And he said, that was you. In Ezekiel chapter 16, beginning in verse 4, it says, And as for your birth on the day that you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No, I pitied you. To do any of these things to you out of compassion for you. But you were cast out in the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. And when I passed by you, I saw you wallowing in your blood. And I said to you, in your blood, live. Look down in verse 9. It says, Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you with embroidered cloth. I shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. Just like Israel, God saw us covered in sin. He saw us unwanted and uncared for and lost in dying. And God took us in. And He washed us. And he cleansed us. And he clothed us. Romans chapter 6, verse 3. That's God's nature. He wants to provide and protect and take care of us. He wants us to come home. You know, one thing you need to keep in mind is that hen with her wings outstretched 
doesn't grab those chicks and force her under her wing and say, this is where you have to be. That father of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15, he didn't go into the city and grab his son and say, I know what's best for you and drag him home where he would be safe and protected and cared for. Remember in Luke 15 verse 17, the prodigal son had to come to himself. He had to realize that he was lost. He had to realize that he was better off at home. He had to realize his father loved him. He had to repent and return home. And there the father waited with outstretched arms. There was that hen with her wings outstretched. But you have to come home. God does not return to us because God never left us. Hebrews 13, verse 5, we have a promise. I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's our God. It's not God who left us. It's we who left him. It's we and our sins and our selfishness. It's your sins and your iniquities that have separated you from God. Isaiah 59, verse 2. But God doesn't leave us. I have a friend who's a preacher up in the Dallas area. He does a lot of missionary work. I've known him for years going all the way back to New Zealand. His name's Ron Coleman. He's a dear friend, and he has a sweet wife by the name of Rose. And Ron tells this story about how that when he and Rose first started dating in the 60s, they had one of these old cars that had the front seat was a bench seat. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about, but they used to have in the front seat, it was just one long bench. And the great thing about that was you could ride around with one hand on your wheel and one hand around your best girl because she was sitting right next to you. And that's how Ron and Rose used to drive around in that car. But unfortunately, cars progressed and came along, and now we have two separate bucket seats in the front seat. And you can't really put your arm around your best girl anymore like that. And Rose one day said to Ron, Ron, why is it that when we drive around in the car, you don't put your arm around me like you did when we were first married? And Ron's response was, Rose, I didn't move. God has not moved. It is we who have moved, but yet God so desperately calls us to come home and pleads with us to come home because God wants to provide and take care of us. That is the nature of our God. Nothing makes God happier than for one sinner to repent. Luke 15 verse 10 says, there's great rejoicing that takes place in the presence of angels. Do you know who's in the presence of angels? God himself. God rejoices when we come home because he longs to take care of us as the apple of his eye. And the third thing that we're going to talk about this morning, the character of God that we learn from these verses, is that what touches us touches God. What touches us touches God. In Zechariah chapter 2, verse 8, we find this passage. It talks about the apple of his eye. It says, for this is what the Lord Almighty says, after he has honored me and has sent me against the nations that have plundered you, for whoever touches you touches the apple of his eye. Have you ever had someone hurt you, deeply hurt you, 
where you felt all alone in this world. That's probably happened to every single one of us. Well, God has a warning for those people who have hurt us. God says, when you touch them, you touch me. Whatever you do to my children, you do to me. When you hurt them, you're hurting God himself. You know, when Saul was on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9... Remember, he was going around and he was persecuting individual Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ, like Job prayed about earlier. And as Saul was on his way, remember that light shone down and God spoke to Saul and he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting these Christians? Well, that's not what he said. Now, now that would have been true. It was true. But God said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me, because when you persecute them, you're hurting me. When you hurt my children, you hurt me. There is not a stronger force in nature than a mother whose child has been mistreated in school. Because when you mistreat that child, when you hurt that child, you hurt that mother. When you touch them, You touch mom. And God says to us, when they hurt you, you will never in your lifetime hurt alone. Because I hurt with you. In Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15... There's a verse there that that speaks to exactly what we're talking about here. It says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. God understands. God cares. That's why it says in 1 Peter 5 verse 7, cast all your cares on him because he cares for you, because he understands. He knows what we're hurting. He knows what we're feeling. That is the nature of our God. And why does he hurt so deeply? Why does he care for us so much? Because we are the precious apple of his eye. And knowing what we know about God, that God wants to have such a close relationship with us, that he wants to care for and provide for and forgive us, knowing that what touches us touches God, How should we respond to the nature of God as the apple of his eye? Let me suggest two things this morning. Two things. One, God wants our hearts to be soft as the apple of his eye. He wants our our hearts to be soft as the apple of his eye. In Lamentations chapter 2 and verse 18, in, in the King James Version, it reads like this said, their heart cried unto the Lord, O wall of the daughter of Zion, let tears run down like a river day and night, and give yourself no rest. Let not the apple of thine eye cease. If we're going to reflect God's image as the little man of his eye, if we're going to be his children, if we're going to be his ishon, 
then we need to be people who can feel remorse, people who can feel sorrow, people who can cry and weep over things that are not just important, but things that are eternally important. Did you know that in the book of Matthew, seven times in the book of Matthew, you read of weeping or crying, depending upon your translation? Seven times. The first six times you read of weeping in the book of Matthew, it's in the context of someone who is, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth in eternity. And on the last and seventh occasion where you read of weeping in Matthew, it's in Matthew chapter 26, verse 75, where Paul has just denied Jesus for the third time. He heard the rooster crow. He remembered the words of Jesus who said, you will deny me three times this night. And it says, and he went out and wept bitterly. Here's the lesson we should take away from weeping in the book of Matthew. You will either weep in this lifetime over your sins or you will weep in eternity over your sins. We need to be like those people in Acts chapter 2, verse 37, whose hearts could be cut to the core and affected by God. If we can't feel sorrow and remorse over our sins, if we find ourselves unable to cry over things that are really, truly, eternally important, then there's a problem with our heart. It's become hardened. It's become calloused. And, and, and nobody wants that. But it can happen over time. And so how can we prevent our hearts from becoming calloused? Or if our hearts have become hardened, how can we make them softer again? Real quickly, the Bible recommends two things. First of all, encouraging one another will soften our hearts. In Hebrews 3, verse 13, it says, But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. When we encourage one another and build one another up, like we're going to have an opportunity to do in just a few minutes, after we have that closing prayer, when we encourage and build up each other, we are softening our hearts to be more like Christ. And the second thing that the Bible recommends is listen to God's Word. God's Word will soften your heart. In Zechariah chapter 7, and verses 11 and 12, it says, But they refused to pay attention. Stubbornly they turned their backs and stopped up their ears. They made their hearts as hard as flint and would not listen to the law or to the words that the Lord Almighty had sent by His Spirit through the earlier prophets. So the Lord Almighty was very angry. God's Word can break us down. It can cut us to our heart and to our core. It can soften our hearts. And you couple that with encouragement from brothers and sisters in Christ. And you have a recipe for keeping your heart soft. The kind of heart that we need to have as the apple of his eye. Finally, God wants, to, God wants us to be submissive as the apple of his eye in response to his nature and character. God wants us to be submissive. In Proverbs chapter 7, in verses 1 and 2, we read this. My son, keep my words and store up my commands within you. Keep my commands and you will live. Guard my teachings as the apple of your eye. 
Child of God, what is that in your eye? What is that that I see in the center, in the pupil, in the e shown of your eye? Is that submissiveness that I see? Submission to God and submission to His Word? That should be our response to the nature and the character of God. Yes, I sin, and yes, I'm imperfect, but what is my desire? Do I desire and long to be what God wants me to be? Like the psalmist wrote in Psalm 119, verse 11, Your word have I hid in my heart, and you know the rest of it, that I might not sin against you. Is that our desire? Is that what we want to be? Do I have a spirit, a humble spirit that says, I want to submit to God. I want to be what he wants me to be. I want to listen and follow his words. Let me close by giving you an example of two young men who had a great impact on my life. Their names are Perry and Jeremy. Some of you teens may have heard me talk about this before, and I apologize. You guys are just kind of stuck with me. You've heard a lot of lessons from me. Perry and Jeremy, both these young men were about 10 years of age. I met Perry, I think, in 1991. And what happened was I was with a, a fellow student from Brown Trail, and he, his name was Roddy, and we, he was going to go. He preached out in a little town called Strawn, Texas. Does anybody know where Strawn is? It's exactly halfway between Fort Worth and Abilene. On the map, there's a little circle that says nowhere. That's where it is. It's in the middle of nowhere. And Roddy and I went out on Saturday, and we went out there, and we knocked on every door in town, and we still had some time left over at the end of the day. Strawn is a small town. And then on Sunday, we went there, and Roddy was preaching that Sunday morning in Strawn, and this little 10-year-old boy comes walking in all by himself. And I tried to figure out, well, who, who does he belong to and what family is he with? And he just he sat with some older people. I thought, well, maybe that's his grandparents or something. I, I, I couldn't tell. Well, afterwards, after worship services, this sweet sister in the congregation invited Roddy and his wife and me over for dinner afterwards. And Perry came along, this little young 10-year-old boy. And so I started talking with Perry while, while they were finishing up, getting dinner ready. And as I talked to Perry, I found out that he had met Roddy several weeks ago when Roddy was out door knocking. Roddy gave him a Bible and invited him to come. And Roddy had been coming ever since. He would wake up. He would set his alarm for himself every Sunday morning and get himself up. His parents didn't do it because his parents didn't care what he did on Sunday morning. They were still in bed. And he would set that alarm and get himself up. He would bathe himself. He would fix himself breakfast. He would get himself dressed. He'd get his Bible. He'd get on his bike. And he would ride down to the church building all by himself. And I was impressed with Perry. And then Perry told me, and I want to be a preacher just like Roddy. There's a submissive spirit there. Now let me tell you about Jeremy. Jeremy was a young boy, about 10 years old, same as Perry. And Jeremy and his family were members of the congregation that I was working with in 1988 as a youth intern in Hopewell, Virginia. And Jeremy's dad, over the summer, was a director of a Bible camp that was nearby. 
And several of my friends that I knew there at the church in Hopewell, uh, they worked there full time over the course of the summer at this camp as staff or counselors. And so from time to time, I would go out there and check on them and visit my friends and bring them ice cream. I was very popular. Uh, and I'd bring food uh, and check up on them. And whenever I came, Jeremy would come out. He would see me because he was there with his folks at camp. And he would come running out and he'd give me a big hug. And everything was great. And we were buddies and we'd play horseshoes and we had a great time. And then when it came time for the church at Hopewell to bring a group and I was going to be there that whole week and be a counselor, I know Jeremy talked to his dad and he said, Dad, make sure that Mr. Kevin is a counselor in my cabin because we're, we're best friends. I know some conversation like that happened because when I got to camp, I was the counselor over the 10-year-olds. And there was Jeremy. Except we weren't best friends anymore. Jeremy didn't give me any more hugs. You see, now I'm a counselor. Now I'm in a position of authority. Now I've got to tell these little boys what time they have to get up, what time they go to bed, what we're going to do, clean up your cabin, Get ready for this. Be quiet. Go to sleep. Stop making those noises. See, that's my job now. And Jeremy didn't like that. And I really didn't take it personally because it wasn't just me. It was everybody all week long. Jeremy was a problem all week long, which made it a very long week. And I talked to the other counselors about Jeremy. I talked to Jeremy's folks about Jeremy. I talked to Jeremy about Jeremy, and nothing worked. And I didn't know what to do. And so one morning, we're getting there, and we're cleaning up the cabin, and we're, we're, we're getting things ready uh, after breakfast, and I'm telling the boys what to do. Put that up and hide those dirty clothes, and you know, put that under your bunk and straighten up your bed. And there's Jeremy sitting on the floor, and I said, Jeremy, you need to make your bed. He just sat there. And so I'm telling the boys, do this and do that. And I'm trying to get ready and clean myself up as well. And I said, Jeremy, I I told, clean up your bed. You got to clean up your bed. He just sat there. And so I said, guys, everybody, everybody stop. Stop what you're doing. Guys, everybody, everybody stop and come and sit down right here. We need to talk about something. And so everybody came and sat. And I said, guys, we, we have a problem. We've, we've apparently got one person in this cabin who thinks that they're different and better than everybody else. We've got one person in this cabin that thinks the rules don't apply to them. We've got one person in this cabin that doesn't think that they have to do anything that anybody else asks them to do. I said, and, and guys, and, and we all know what, who it is. I said, it's Jeremy right there. I said, and guys, I, I don't know what to do. I said, I've tried everything I know. I said, do you guys have any suggestions as to what you think I could do to get Jeremy to try to get along? And these 10-year-old boys just looked up at me, had no clue. I said, guys, I've tried everything. I said, well, actually, there's one thing I haven't tried yet. I said, let's do this. I said, why don't we pray right now for Jeremy? And so I said, so let's bow our heads and let's pray. And we prayed for Jeremy. We prayed for his spirit. We prayed that he would be kinder, that he would listen to people, that he would get along, that he would be more Christ-like. We prayed for Jeremy. And I remember when I finished the prayer, I looked up, and I looked over to my right to where Jeremy was. He's the first person I looked at to look at his response. He looked up at me, and he had this look on his face. And it's hard to describe But if he he were to speak right then, I think what his look would have said to me was, 
if someone would please hand me a gun, I'm going to shoot you right between the eyes. Perry and Jeremy couldn't have been farther apart on the spectrum of rebellion and submissiveness. One wanted to be a servant, and one wanted to be served. In response to God and who He is and His nature, His loving nature that He wants, even when we are so undeserving, He yet still wants to have a close relationship with me and you for some reason. He wants to provide and take care of us even though we clearly do not deserve that. He wants to be our dearest friend because we're the apple of his eye. And in response, I should want more than anything else to submit and serve that loving God. If you've not been baptized into Christ, you can't have that close personal relationship because you're outside of Christ. And you need to be in Christ. And there's only one way to be baptized into Christ, Romans 6, verse 3. And Galatians 3, 27, the only way in is to be baptized into Christ. That's how you start that close personal relationship. And if you haven't done that, then you need to do that this morning. Believing that Jesus is who he claimed to be, deity, the Son of God, repenting of your sins, you need to be baptized into Christ and start that relationship. But for so many of us, we've been in that relationship for a long time. And maybe over time, our hearts have become a little bit unfeeling and uncaring and cold and callous, and we really don't want that. And you want that close relationship that you had once before. But it's not God who moved away. It's us who have removed ourselves from his holy presence. Let us encourage you. Let us pray for you. Let us help you in any way that we can this morning. If you would, as you would come forward as we stand and sing the invitation song.